John chapter 8. I'm going to read a few verses, and I'm actually going to jump over to a psalm and read some of that to you. But John 8. Jesus went under the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again unto the temple, and all of the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman is taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, uh, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said to tempt him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground as though he had heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself, and he said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down, and he wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted of their own conscience, went out one by one, being a beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus lifted up himself and saw no one but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Who hath condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And then Psalm 124. David writes this psalm referring to the time when the children of Israel were set free out of Egypt and God's wonderful deliverance. Uh, saving them. But the way he writes about it is quite beautiful in Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who is on our side, now Israel may say, then he repeats himself, if it had not been for the Lord who is on our side, when men rose up against us, they had swallowed us up quick when their wrath was kindled against us. The waters had overwhelmed us. This uh, stream had gone over our soul. Then the proud waters uh, had, gone, uh, had gone over our soul. But blessed be the Lord who hath not given us as a prey to their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we are escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather together and worship you. Come before you and living in a world that so, does so much to try to exhaust us, uh, to attack us, to weaken us. Lord, we're so grateful for a time where we can just come and open our heart and let down all of our defenses and just say, Lord, speak to me. Strengthen me. Lord, draw me closer to you and give me some truth that will strengthen and draw and fill. We ask it, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen. You know, there's something to me so absolutely... uh, Masterful, I guess. When you watch Jesus work, and you just see every day, wherever he was, you just see him go from situation to situation, circumstance to circumstance, attack after attack, or a trial after trial, or they're always back and forth with the masses. But it seemed like every day, how how exciting it would have been just in following him and watching him handle situations that so often seem so hopeless, so impossible. Uh, you know, so way beyond any human solution to them. And yet he solved them over and over and over again. And it's like almost watching a, a master, a craftsman, or a master, you know, somebody there with an instrument. 
you know, I, you give me a violin and say, play it, you know, uh, you would find out on the first strum of it. This guy has no idea what he's doing, you know, but yet you come along, if you've ever watched or heard somebody like Isaac Stern, they considered one of the greatest violinists ever. And you, you know, I mean, this guy, he, you realize when he picked up a violin, he owned it. It was an extension of him. He could play that thing and just, and, and, and it just every, whatever he wanted to bring out of it, it just came so beautifully. I listen to a lot of classical music when I study and on planes and things. And Van Cliburn as a pianist, he won a lot of great things around in history of the world. But when he would sit down and play the piano, and uh, he, he, he owned the piano. It, it was his. It was just whatever he wanted to call out of it. He could just do it. Well, I think watching Jesus, as when he went everywhere, every situation, no matter how, nobody else could play it. Nobody else could answer it. Nobody else could make any beauty or music out of it. And yet you walked away and you had just seen and heard something beyond your dreams. Uh, in every situation, watching him day in and, and day out. Well, here we have in, this, in chapter 8 here in John, this woman caught in the very act of adultery. And as she's caught, the Pharisees bringing her to Jesus to accuse. Actually, they didn't care about her. They were after Jesus. They had a situation there. They were trying to find any way whatsoever to condemn Jesus, call him a fraud, you know, that he was some sort of a cheap dog and pony show to hit to them. They didn't believe him at all. And yet at the same time, the masses were following him. And they were looking at any way to bring him down, any way to reveal this guy is a fraud. He's not from God. And they dreamed up what looked to them like to be the absolute perfect situation. That is there, to, to, uh, they caught this woman in the act of adultery. And uh, they drag her to Jesus. Now, it's interesting. Uh, the way adultery usually happens, uh, you don't have to be a, the sharpest person, but it usually takes two people <laughs> and uh, there, but they, and both of them are condemned. They didn't seem to bring the participant. Uh, somehow or another, they no doubt knew this was going on. They knew when the very act was happening. So it suggests strongly there was a setup. They had sent somebody there, you know, into this situation there to do this. So they all of a sudden could jump in and have, you know, two or more witnesses that this absolutely happened. They then take this woman, drag her to Jesus. And they said, now Moses says in the law that such a one should be stoned. What sayest thou? And it was essentially the perfect catch 22. They didn't care what he said. I'm sure they didn't care at all what his answer was. You see, because if he said, you know, in a Moses in the law, therefore, if, if he said, well, that's what it says, therefore, we should stone her. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus, who had been going around with this wonderful love and mercy and grace and all these sinners and other people that have been coming to him and finding hope and forgiveness there. Now, if but if, but if he if he stones her, the, the woman, then he's just as legalistic and as judgmental as by, you know, Moses said, we should stone her, stone her. You know, she's a sinner. We caught her being a sinner. And so and, and now he would set himself as being no different than them. And uh, the, what they, this is what should happen, and you're not doing this, therefore don't tell us anymore that you have come to fulfill the law. Jesus himself said, there won't be one jot or tittle of the law I will not fulfill. And now they got him. So either he does it and shows he's just like them, or else he forgives her. Or else he looks at, nah, come on, you guys. I mean, she, she, she really feels bad about this thing, and we just got to be kind to her. And, we, and, and now he shows he didn't honor the law. So they didn't care his answer. Either way, they had him. It was the perfect setup with it. Well, they bring her to Jesus. 
And it's interesting, as they bring her, one of the things here that, that hits me is back in Psalm 124, the children of Israel were in a devastating situation. As David writes about it, he talks there about how there that the Lord came. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, the enemy would have swallowed us up quick. The, the rivers would have gone over our soul. We were done for. It was history. But he says, but our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowl. Or our soul is escaped and we're free. And it's interesting. Here David refers to this time of when they were caught and God was setting them free as that they had been caught in the snare of a fowler. And God came and he set them out of this snare. Now a fowler, we don't use that word so much, but, but we know the word poacher and, uh, and or a, a serper. Uh, a poacher, They're essentially a, a poacher, a, a, a fowler, it's a hunting term. Or a, 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 and a, it's a term that's used essentially, a poacher is somebody or a fowler is somebody. They, they come onto land that they don't own. They set traps, decoys, put out food and bait. You know, whatever it is, is they, they put it all around. You know, go and put some ducks out in a pond, some, you know, uh, uh, decoys out there. They hide over in the, in the bulrushes and camouflage, uh, you know, outfits. And then they got their duck call. And, you know, as the birds are flying south for the winter, they need, they've been flying. They're tired. They know when they, it's coming towards the end of the day. They're exhausted. They need refreshing. And they look down and, oh, look, there's a pond. There's ducks already there. Must be food. There must be something there for them and uh, and, and a, a poacher also he hunts for a, a prey that's not in season and he, he uses total deception it is all based on setting up something that looks like one thing and yet in reality it is a complete fraud it is completely set up there to draw them in to deceive them and then to prey upon them and hunt them and kill them and uh, that is essentially what a fowler is a poacher is. And, uh, and here again, as these birds would just be flying over or whatever else, and, or a poacher, there's somebody there. It's, it's a hunting term as well as the snare of a fowler. It could be a bird that comes. It could be a bear. It could be whatever their prey is. When they go out, they set a bear trap. And then after they set the trap, they put, you know, they, they put some leaves or whatever else over it. Then they put a piece of meat there right in the middle where some hungry bear just come, hey, look at this, free lunch. You know, just coming out, you know, out there and say, what phenomenal. I don't even have to hunt for it. How can you do better than that? And just waiting there for the prey. And then, of course, the trap, it's got a, you know, strap that goes over around a tree. And uh, then as they step into it to go get the meat, all of a sudden, snap, it shuts. Or if it's a, another a snare that literally goes around their foot and as they try to pull away, it tightens like a noose around them and a snare. And there is the harder they try to pull away. The digger, the, you know, deeps in, it, 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 it digs into their skin, you know, holding there, containing them, uh, you know, from it. And so whether it is a, uh, a fowler, a poacher, uh, it's all based on, on deception. And here the Bible looks at God describes Satan as a fowler, as a poacher, as an usurper. Somebody there who sets things up, you know, appealing to the natural desires, needs, curiosities of his prey, sets it up in a completely deceptive way that, that they just think they're going for one thing. 
Well, meantime, they have been entirely set up. And at that point, once they catch them, usually with a fowler or poacher, they just kill them. They're just out hunting them. They want the meat or the, the fur or whatever else it is that they, they're after. And, uh, but the interesting thing is with Satan, that, isn't what, that, is, that is not his main thing. It isn't just merely to get them into the snare and then to kill them. Rather than that, it's interesting that at that point, once he gets them into the snare, it actually, in the way the devil goes about it, is it's now it gives him the opportunity to begin even a greater work. His great work that he does. For as an usurper or a fowler, as a master deceiver, as it now becomes one of the works that he loves to be and loves to do and does so well. As the Bible calls him, he's now he's the accuser of the brethren. He now is somebody there. He gets us in his trap, can now put a guilt trip on us. The harder we try to get free, the deeper the snare goes in around the leg or the wire tartens, it tightens, the bloodier we get. And, uh, and now, there when we want to fly on south and continue our journey, he holds us back. Now he, he clips our wings, so to speak. And uh, in meantime, now we realize what we've done. We realize it's been wrong. We realize now what, what, what we, the, you know, kind of what, what went on. And then to, in order to try to get free, we now promise God we'll never do it again. God, I'm so sorry. I knew I shouldn't have done that. I don't know why I did that. It was a moment of weakness. I'm so sorry. But I want you to know, God, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to stay closer. I'm going to, I'm going to set higher standards for myself. I'm not going to allow these events that I now see happen and how I was set up. I'm not going to fall prey to those things again. And it's interesting, but, you know, it's like New Year's resolutions. How many of us have made New Year's resolutions in your life? Only five people. I, <laughs> one of them probably was, I'll never lie again. But then you've done it right now. But at any rate, the, <laughs> the point is, we, we said a lot. We, we have always, we have this nature about us. In areas where we're weak, we correct it by making a standard, a law. We make promises, commitments. I will not do, or I will do, or I'm going to. It, I mean, the interesting thing to me, I don't know how many times, I, I'm, I, 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 I mean, I pick up weight. I can, I think I can gain weight on pure water and oxygen. That's all I need, and I gain weight. And no matter what it is, you know, since I really last 40 years of ministry, you fly someplace, land, they say, let's go eat. And I say, okay. And then, and then you eat, and you eat, and you eat, and you eat, and get on a plane, and go home and eat. But anyway, the, uh, the thing that, uh, with it, I, I don't know how many times you go on a diet. In fact, I'm actually going to write a diet book. It's going to be a great book because I, I, I should be, I'm qualified. I've lost somewhere between three and 4,000 pounds during my lifetime. So, I mean, and the thing is, they all work for a time. As long as you can keep it up, kind of. You make a promise. You make a commitment. You know, but then, you know, then, you, know you find yourself weakening. And you wonder, why doesn't it work? Well, Paul tells us in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six it says, The sting of death is sin. But the strength of sin is the law. In other words, here you know, we, we fall into sin, but then what actually strengthens it within us, Paul says, is the law. In other words, we, Satan now gets us to put ourselves under some sort of a self-inflicted law, a standard, a promise, a commitment that only gives him a greater opportunity to condemn us, 
a greater opportunity to say, <laughs> look at you. How many times have you promised? How many times? Who are you kidding? Look how you think. Look at what you desire. Look what's going on. Look, at, look down at your bloody you know, leg there. You know, you're going nowhere. Anytime you think you fly, you flop right back down. You're going nowhere. And the accusation he has. And then one of his greatest accusations is guilt. Now, I mean, that is the, you know, even some more important to him than actually snagging us in the first place, pulling us into something, is now guilt. He threatens us. He has an incredible capacity to threaten us. And he threatens us usually with exposure. I'll expose you. You know who you are. I know who you are. You know what you did. Nobody else knows it, but they will. And as a matter of fact, then his great threat is, I'm not only that, I'm telling God on you. I'm going to tell God upon you, you know, all about you. I'm going to expose what you did. And it keeps us continuously under the sense of guilt. You see, the power of sin lies not simply in the, in the act only, but a greater power, it contains us in its grip, in its guilt. Something that you only happen once in a life. Yeah, I say the name John Hinckley. Most of you know that name. One day, one act. And yet his entire life under, you know, that guilt. You know, Charles Manson. We don't know what all the things he did, but one specific thing you see, you know, that name comes up and you realize, Sir Han, Sir Han. There's some one day, one event, one thing, and yet forever under its guilt. Forever exposed. Somebody does something once and it's forever remembered by mankind. You're marked forever. And we fight that fear. We fight that exposure. And here this woman caught in the act, there uh, in the very act as they want to make it clear. You can just imagine here as they caught her and then they drag her. We're telling God on you. We're taking you to Jesus. I imagine that there was two heel marks all the way from her little tent all the way down to where they drug her where she just dug in. No, don't do this to me. No, I'm sorry. No, I'll never do it again. No. You know, and, and, and here, is the, 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 there's a sense there. If God, you take this in the public and tell God. Because, you see, we, we now, because we've done it and we knew better, we now make an assumption, Jesus must hate me. He must be so angry. He must be so disappointed. He's got to despise me for this. It's just got to bring out his, this stare of, you did what? There, but, but amazingly, as this woman is now brought before him, you know, and somebody there who actually made the law, somebody there who fulfilled the law, who loved the law, now, I mean, it's got to bring out his, 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 his hostility. You broke the law. You knew what was right, and you didn't do it. But instead of it bringing out his wrath or his anger or his disappointment or his hostility, it brought out his love. He brought out something that absolutely seemed to dumbfy you. Watch Jesus handle this, play this instrument. It's so masterful watching it. And all of a sudden, it brought, to him, it was an opportunity to expose how, how great his love was. You see, because from Jesus' perspective, you've got to realize he sees it all. He sees everything. Not just the dumb mistake, not just the sin. He sees the whole thing. 
Now, some of you, how, how, some of you going fishing? How many? How many of you are signed up for going fishing? Yeah, you guys. Are you, how many of you are fishermen anyway? A few of you. Well, the, you're interesting people, and uh, with it. <laughs> no, I love fishing if it's deep sea or salmon or running. I, to me, I don't care for fishing much else. I don't, if, if, I want, if I want to take a nap, I just take a nap. I don't have to sit in a boat and hang something over the edge. <laughs> but anyway, so, so God bless you fishermen. That's I mean, But somebody once said the definition of a fisherman is, is a jerk on one end of a line waiting for a jerk on the other. But, the, uh, but that's never me. I don't feel that way. But anyway, but a fisherman, if you're a good fisherman, or a good hunter. A good fisherman, you see, goes down to the sporty goods store or wherever it is, you know, and, 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 he, and he shops for the best rod and reel he can get. What is it he's going to be going after? What test of line do I want? Then look at all the lures, all the bait, all the different things that there are and the, the, to go after whatever it is he's going to be fishing for. And then he'll go down to the docks, you know, in the morning, and he'll go into the bait shop and he'll turn to the guy and he says, what are they hitting on? What are they biting on? What's out there? You know, salmon eggs, worms, you know, a lure or whatever. And he says, well, they like this. I say, what's the best one out there? Well, then he may go back and say, well, you really want the best thing we got. Yeah, I want the best. He goes in, he brings out this little lure. And here's this little lure. It's a little fish. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's just not a little. I mean, it's, it's, it, he says, now this one. You know, this, this one here we call her Lady Lips. She's incredible. And here you look at her, she's a, a painted lady lips. She's just high gloss, enamel, and speckles all over. The sun comes down, goes, flickers off of her, and she just stands out in the water. You know, and then you got these little lures around there that just kind of speckle off all of the little things on it. She's got these big red lips, and boy, these, now their mama told them, look out, there's no real you know, lady lips out there. But the kid, he's never, he's all of a sudden, he's out there swimming and he's hungry. And all of a sudden, I'll tell you, when lady lips goes by him, he can't stop himself. He goes after lady lips. He's got to have her. And so, all right, give me lady lips. And he goes out there and he, you know, drops the thing in there and going around and sure enough, boom, he catches the fish. He does it. But, you know, but the interesting thing, in legal terms, in legal terms, we call that entrapment. In legal terms, we saw that when somebody is set up. Some of you may remember, be old enough to remember John DeLorean. A fellow who years ago, he built, a, you know, the DeLorean sports car. And it was going quite well, but he was running out of money towards the end of getting it to mass produced. He was desperate for millions to finish the job. Well, the government, of all people, hears about this, and they set up a sting operation where they went to him and said, you know, we, we, we got some people willing to loan you the millions you need. Really? Yes. Man, and here's the interest. Here's what they want for it. And he goes, yes, yeah. And he just they, everything that he needed, they, they supplied. Meantime, everything's being recorded. Everything's being, you know, filmed that's going on, all their activities. Then they finally come down to the day delivering the money, the exchange of the money. And in the process, in the, uh, if you ever saw the videos of it, uh, where they, they sit down and say, oh, by the way, we, you know, the money, you know, a lot of this is drug money. And uh, which it was at that point, uh, that's illegal. That's a felony. Now to accept money for business there that you know to be illegal, you know, drug money. Well, they, and he says, I don't, I, I, I don't want to know where it came from. He says, I don't care. Just you know, don't tell me any about that. 
So right here they go through the whole thing just so they hand in the suitcase. And as soon as he takes possession of it, all of a sudden doors come open. Guys come in from everywhere all around. They film the whole thing. And then, of course, I mean, what he did, he was, was illegal. But the government that was there to protect people, supposedly, set him up. And he ended up, you know, going all through a quite a court case, and he ended up losing everything with his car thing, but he won the case. And the government looked there and said, this is terrible. You have set up somebody. You found their weaknesses and their vulnerabilities, and a government that ought to be taking care of people failed here. And, uh, you know, with that. But here, you know, Jesus does the same. He, he sees the whole thing. He sees all of it. He sees the enemy, the, 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 the usurper. He sees the deceiver, the beguiler. The, you know, there he, the, 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 as, as he's called in the Bible, somebody there that comes to beguile, to entrance, to draw into by deception, thinking you're going to get one pleasure satisfied while you're actually being a hook is set in. And here, you know, this is exactly there. What, when Jesus looks at this, seeing everything. He saw the guy go by the fishing pole. He saw him go down, you know, and pick out the bait. He saw him there, sat there. He saw him drop it over. He saw the whole thing. He, he saw every bit of it. And now when Jesus comes in, he sees this and sees this woman there who, when and how this started in her life, whether there was a man she really loved once and whether there was one thing or another, but then another man, and then he didn't love her and she got used. And next thing you know, they keep the, the hook is just sunk in. And now he's just kept the enemy's just kept her there as he wants, but now he's even got a bigger use for her. Now I'm going to take you down. Now I'm going to destroy you. But here Jesus, seeing the father of all liars, seeing the enemy that set up one of his children, sees somebody who he loves so dearly. All this happened. There he comes along, and rather than, than he comes there, as, as our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowler. There, even though that little fish there, he loves taking the hook out. Yeah, that fish, his mama looked out there and said, don't you go around with it. You see these big lips on fish? That's not real. We don't have big lips. We don't shine like that. We don't speckle like that. We don't look like that. And here, you know, Junior, stay away from this stuff. It's not real. It'll destroy it. Yeah, okay, Mom, thank you. But all of a sudden, it happens, and he's set up. And next thing you know, it's in, and he's pulling around, and all he's saying, Mama told me not to do this. I knew it was wrong. The guilt. But when Jesus comes along, there's nothing he loves more than loosening the snare, taking the hook out. And yet the thing is, the interesting thing is, is, is as much as that is, and, and the great work that he did on the cross of forgiving all of our sins, he has a greater work to do than, either, than even that within us so often. A more powerful work sometimes. And that is there not just simply forgiving the woman. That was easy. Forgiving her for what she had done. You know, that's why he came. That's why he died on the cross. That was what he forgave all of us. Uh, we're all sinners. All of us are saved, you know, by the same cross, the same blood, the same work. But with Jesus, it wasn't just forgiving her. That was easy. The greater thing that had to be done here was that he had to be able to, to, to deal with the accusers. Somebody's making things. Am I supposed to? Am I done? One minute. One minute? <laughs> Never going to happen, buddy. What? Oh, really? 
Okay. <laughs> hey, I'm gone tomorrow. I don't care how it ends up here. I'm out of here. But anyway. <laughs> okay. Oh. <laughs> okay. But anyway, now he looks there. What is more important? How do I deal with the accusers? Forgiving her was nothing. Now he looks around and, 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 and to deal with the accusers. And this is so masterful. Because he can almost look at her and realize there he had to get rid of these accusers. To see, you, know, this, you, you can't fly again. So the accusation, forgiving you, you know, fixing you, doing all of that. But the guilt, dealing with that. And Jesus there, so he, he, they said, what do we do with this woman? Moses says we should stone her. He goes down and he writes in the sand something. We have no idea what he writes. All we know is that they keep on asking him, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And he stands up for a moment. And, you know, and, and at that point, he turns, you know, and they're asking him again. And he, he says, well, if you're a sinner, you can go ahead and do it. And then he goes down and he writes more in the sand. And all we're told there is from the eldest to the least being convicted of their own conscience, their own sin. And so what most expositors through history, I suppose he probably wrote down their names. Jesus, it says he knew all men, gave himself to no man, for he knew the hearts of all men. He knew everyone and their names, their life, their history, everything, as he does all of us. But it's supposed he wrote down their name and then maybe over next to it, he wrote a sin. And then another name and a sin, another name and a sin. And they're watching all of this. And then maybe when he goes back down again, he draws a line from one of their names, Abraham, over to adultery. Isaac or somebody else over to one of their names, Imi, over to liar, thief, or whatever. But all we know is from the eldest to the least convicted of their own sin. They leave. They just, oh, (laughs) sorry, fellas, I forgot. Martha, I promised her I'd, I'd bring home a loaf of bread. I'm late. I've got to go. They excuse themselves from the oldest to the least. Why? The older you are, the more you're, we got of a history of humanness, of sinfulness. The more that has gone on in our heart and our life, the more our innocence has been tarred. And here, though Jesus there, he's got to get rid of them. Charles Wesley, who you may know, John Wesley, one of the history's greatest evangelists. His brother Charles was a great songwriter. One of his greatest songs that has lived on and on and on, Oh, Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. The third verse of it is so powerful. He says, Oh, Four Thousand Tongues to Sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. That's verse one. Verse three, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Here, Charles Wesley says, there he breaks the power of canceled sin. It's been canceled. It's done. The cross did that. But yet you can still be under its power, under its guilt. Some of you may be sitting here today. You know you're forgiven. You know God loves you. You're you're here because, you know, the, the blood of Christ, he's forgiven you. The sin is canceled. And yet, it still has guilt. It can still hold you back, still keep you down. And not letting Jesus do even a greater work, setting you free from its power of canceled sin. Because if you don't, it can hold you back for many years, a lifetime. My great-grandfather on my mother's side lived in a city called Grinnell, Iowa. 
He was a, uh, I don't know a lot of details about him. We know that he sat on the church council wherever he went. Don't know anything about the church. And he was also what sat on the city council for the church, so he, uh, for the city. So he was a man with a certain amount of recognition. Had a wife, a couple of children in their teens. He had an affair with a married woman in town who also had two children. She got pregnant. And all of a sudden it comes out in this smaller town. You know, that what had happened here, here, this man had now committed adultery with a woman and got her pregnant. Well, at that point, the woman's husband left, never to be found again, left this woman and her two children and her pregnancy. Well, she went on and had a child, my grandmother. And then not long after my grandmother was born, she died. Then don't know why she died or what it was of, but she died. Amazingly, my great-grandfather, his wife, who he had committed adultery against, had not only forgiven him, took my grandmother and adopted her as her own child. And took the other two children that had now been the father abandoned, the mother died, and took them in. Didn't actually adopt them because they were in early teens, but cared for them until they matured and grew up. Incredible. My grandmother grows up, child of, you know, an affair, falls in love with my grandfather. And who was, they were a wealthy family. We only know that they had Morrison Glove Factory they owned, a big employer, and he was the first guy in Grinnell to own an automobile. That's all we kind of know about that generation somewhat. But my grandfather, and she falls in love with my grandfather, they fall in love. He gets my grandmother pregnant. Same thing her father did. Now she and my grandfather did. Well, back then, in those days, what they did is you just move. They just get you on. They, they had a quick wedding. Got her, you know, got him married off. Sent him to California. Gave him enough money, I guess, to kind of start a business, and he ended up doing well. But interesting, as, as I look back at all of my years with my grandparents, my grandfather, who we believe was truly born again. But my grandmothers, they went to church every Sunday, and he was a huge sponsor of the YMCA, and actually a happy man in a lot of ways. My grandmother, never happy. Never happy a woman. We never understood things very well, but anyway, that's all we, you know, you know about her. Well, as the years go by, my mother comes to Christ. She leads her sister to Christ. They go and have this wonderful time with the mother, and as she gets older and she ends up in a rest home, they went back and forth and would read the Bible to her and pray with her as she came to Christ, too wonderfully. But one day, not before long, long before she was getting close to death, they came in and here in a room was a letter that was written to their, to my mother and my aunt saying, do not open until after my death. And they opened up this letter and they read it. And here was all the story they never knew. My grandparents had celebrated, called it their second anniversary when it was really their first. They moved to California, started all over, you know, with here, with my aunt, their daughter, say, looking quite legitimate there because uh, they were married longer than they were, actually. So all their life, their entire life, every, their ninth anniversary, they celebrated their 10th. Their 49th was their 50th. It was a complete deception. It took them away from their families. All their relatives, they moved away, and we hardly ever even heard or saw of anything in that side of the family. And here you saw the power of sin. 
Not so much something that happened, you know, in recourse, but the amazing thing when my mother and aunt read this, they broke down and they wept because they dearly loved their womb, their mother. They just went and cried with her and shared with her how much they loved her. We forgive you, of course. Why? You know, as if you, you had to live with this. Didn't you know you were forgiven? Didn't you know? And they had a wonderful thing then is now she realized her daughters loved them. She felt we ruined your life because we took you away from everything. But that's what happens when we don't know we're forgiven. You can, you, when we theologically know we're forgiven, but there can be other things there that hang over us that we fear so terribly that might destroy us. But here the wonderful thing is, is that Jesus there, he looks at us. Because one of the things, maybe there's many of us, so we could go back something, you know, many, many, many years ago, decades ago. And yet the enemy still has the snare, still has the hook. We're here, we know we're forgiven, we know Jesus loves us, and yet, fear of it. Fear of exposure. Fear that one day, something, somewhere, sometime, somehow, and all of a sudden, there it is. Exposed. But to realize, though, that Jesus looks at this and how he loves us, how he cares, how he says, I love you. I, this, it's all exposed to me. I know every bit of it. You're free. He looks at the woman there, and when he gets rid of the accusers, he says, now, where are thine accusers? She looked around, had to be the most stunned human being. I have no man. She's looking around at this. I have no, as he takes the hook out, neither do I condemn thee. Go. Send no more the power of its broken. You're free. As a bird that is set free out of the snare of the fowler. And how he looks there, how he cares. Twas battered and scarred, and the old auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while. Uh, there to waste much time in the old violin, but he held it up, and with a smile, he said, What am I bidding, good folks? He cried, Who will start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, who will make it two? Two dollars, who will make it three? Ah, three dollars once, three dollars twice, and three dollars going, but no, for from the room far back came a gray-haired man, and he picked it up with a bow. Well, then wiping the dust off the old violin, he tightened its loosened strings, and then he played it, a melody as pure and sweet as a caroling angel sings. Well, the music stopped, and the auctioneer, with a voice that is quiet and low, said, Now, what am I bidding for the old violin? And he held it up with a bow. A thousand dollars? Who'll make it two? Two thousand? Who'll make it three? Ah, three thousand once, three thousand twice. And going and gone, said he. Well, the people cheered, but some of them cried. We don't quite understand. What changed its worth? But swift came the reply. Why was the touch of the master's hand? Oh, many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin. He's auctioned cheap by the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. There, much, much like the old violin, a message, pot, mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice. He's going and almost gone. But the master comes in the foolish crowd, still can't quite understand. The worth of a soul, the change that is wrought by a touch 
from the master's hand. And when we find ourselves coming there and saying, Jesus, this is who you are. And thank you, you know who I am. You know what ensnares me. Set me free. Set me truly free. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your love and we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask that today that maybe there's some of us sitting here things that many decades ago, things in our lives, things that we've done our best to cover, and yet, Lord, they still snag us. They still hold us. Lord, we pray that you would would help and set us free with your love, with your word. So, Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. Your wonderful name. Amen.